doing kind of an Easter series here leading up to Easter uh, through the chapter on the resurrection. Uh, so we're finally at the spot where he rises from the dead. Uh, last week we were at the spot of what if he didn't rise from the dead and we followed Paul's argument and the Corinthians did not believe or some of them uh, were not holding to a future resurrection of the dead. And I forgot to dismiss the children's children's church. So they all remembered. That's good. I guess I just so excited for Easter. Um, so last week, we uh, as I was saying, uh, Paul argues he, he takes their false belief that some of them held that there is no future resurrection and he argues it to its logical end. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, guess what? We're in a heap of trouble. Uh, We have no forgiveness. We have no hope. Those who are dead in Christ are still lost. You should just pity us. So this morning, we're going to be in verses 20 uh, through 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Let's follow along as we read scripture. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits at his coming, those at his coming, yes, sorry, excuse me, Christ the first fruits, comma, Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father. uh, He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Let's start this morning just with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us from your word here this morning, that we would rejoice in the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Such a privilege it is to know the Lord and to know you as our Savior. We ask that you would speak to each one of us in our hearts, uh, find us where we are and, and show us in your word what you have given to us today. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We are here to celebrate the resurrection today, and I really don't have any cute analogy or story to begin with because the resurrection is unlike anything the world had ever seen. In the ancient world, people understood that that dead men don't rise from the dead. We know today by science that if you die, that's the end, or at least that's the end of your body as far as we can see and tell. And so Christ rising from the dead was a miracles of miracles. And those who believe in God and the power and authority that God has understand that he created all things, that he upholds the world by a word of his mighty power. And so when someone dies, he can bring them back to the dead, back from the dead. 
And God bringing back Jesus from the dead after he had been in the the grave from Friday night until Sunday morning is the great reminder and display to us that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for sins. He has conquered death and now he has ascended into the right hand of the Father in his resurrection state where he reigns. There is nothing more important to our lives to the Christian faith, to to all of human history, than the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our main point this morning is simply that. Rejoice! Be excited! Have joy in your heart! Rejoice that Christ has risen from the dead! You see, the resurrection already, the fact that Jesus has already come back from the dead, makes certain Christ's present and future reign. It guarantees to us that we will have a resurrection. It guarantees to us right now that Jesus is reigning over the entire world. Scripture says that we don't see Him reigning over the entire world But we know he is reigning over the entire world because in his resurrection, he was crowned with glory and honor, given a a human body that could not die. The eternal son of God, who who in the, the virgin birth took on humanity with all its frailness, with all of its weakness, died on the cross in our place, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God. And the resurrection body he gets is a human body that cannot die again. That is filled with the glory of God, crowned with honor. Just like the future resurrection bodies that the believer in Christ will get. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that Christ has risen from the dead. So first this morning, rejoice because Christ's resurrection guarantees the believer's resurrection. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a sign, seal, certain that Jesus Christ's resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Christ's resurrection then is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, notice here how Paul's argument switches. I've already drawn to our attention, and last week we looked at how Paul was going along saying, well, what if Christ hasn't been risen from the dead? What are all the effects of that? What's the problem? And sometimes people in our day say, well, you know, we can still be Christians even if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Or more specifically, we can still be Christians even if we don't believe that Jesus literally came out of the tomb. But Paul has argued that to its logical conclusion, but now he switches his tone. He says, now, or but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's argued through the, well, what if, and now he is saying, Jesus Christ really has risen from the dead. And this resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, first fruits is, is a powerful image that comes from agricultural language. Uh, when you have a harvest, 
when you have a large field or a large garden, uh, or even a small garden maybe, uh, but the first fruits are, are sort of that early in, at least in our climate here, depending on what you're growing, early in spring or early summer, when, when some of those first things on the crops begin to appear. Uh, my wife likes to plant tomatoes, and last year she plant out, planted a few tomatoes uh, in the makeshift garden we have behind the house and where that tree used to be in the backyard at the parsonage. And, and so you get those first tomatoes of the year, the, the first fruits, and, and you pick them and you enjoy them, and you hope that the rest of the harvest comes in. You hope that a hailstorm doesn't damage your tomato crops. Now, in the Old Testament... The first fruits of the harvest were given to God as part of the tithe. Uh, we could quote a lot of places in Scripture, uh, but Exodus 23:19 says, "The best of the first fruits of your ground shall bring you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God." So you take these first crops that you have as part of the grain harvest or part of the festival of harvest, and and you bring it in to the tabernacle or the temple. And you give it over to God. And you go home and you are hoping and trusting that God will bring in the rest of the harvest. Because if something happens, if an army invades, if a storm comes, if locusts come, you could lose all of your crops, all of the rest of your crops. And you've given the first fruits, that first little bit of the harvest before the main harvest. You've given it all over to God. So the first fruits are are what came first. The first fruits are something that represented the whole harvest. It was the first small portion, but in you giving it to God, you are giving Him your best, and it represents that you are trusting Him for the whole of the harvest. And the first fruits then also served as a pledge. God was pledging to you, in you giving these first fruits to Him, God was saying, you can trust me. I will see that you're taken care of. I will assure that the rest of the harvest comes in. It's sort of like a down payment, if you will. If you ever uh, get a, a mortgage at a bank, uh, they usually ask you to, to, to put it down a, a down payment. A few years ago when we had the bank crisis, that was some of the problems. They had stopped asking for down payments. But the down payment, the idea is you put enough money down that you are invested in this house and it guarantees you it is your pledge to the bank that I will give the rest of this money. And so the first fruits, giving it to God in a way is also receiving a pledge from God. That he will bring in the rest of the harvest. So Paul takes this language and applies it to the resurrection. He is saying the resurrection is a first fruit. It is tethered, if you will, to the rest of the harvest, the, the rest of the resurrection of believers. So the first resurrection, Jesus's, brings the rest in. Just as the first fruits brought in the rest of the harvest. It was the, the, the forerunner to the harvest, if you will. Uh, even more, uh, not only is it, is it tethered, but it, 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 it serves as a guarantee. It says to us that we have a resurrection that we will experience. It says to us there is a connection of the resurrections. 
There is one resurrection that happens in phases. And and the first phase, if you will, is the Lord Jesus. Just as in one summer you have one harvest and it might come in at slightly different times. You have one resurrection of the dead. And guess what? God started it when Jesus rose from the dead. This is why it is so foundational that Paul says Jesus must be risen from the dead. It one, it has happened. But two, if it hasn't, the whole Christian faith falls apart. Look at verse 17 and 18 of our chapter. Paul, again, arguing to the contrary. Now, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But Christ has been raised from the dead. So we have security in our salvation, security in the coming resurrection. The security of your salvation hangs on the reality, the historical event, the fact that it happened that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, And he's talking to believers. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, as those who are about those who are asleep, meaning those who have gone into the grave, who have died bodily. The imagery is being asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. And then he says this, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. Christ rose from the dead. Therefore, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will rise from the dead. First, those who are already dead. And then just moments later, those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will rise from the dead into a will rise into the glorious state of a resurrection body. Notice then, as Paul goes on, he's fleshing out this representation The first image is is the first fruits. The second connection to our our Bibles is back to Adam. So there is a parallel between Adam and Christ. Look at verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul is expanding on this connection. He is expanding on this first fruits concept and he is going to the Old Testament and he's saying, what kind of connection of representation do we have? Well, remember Adam when Adam sinned, what happened to all of the descendants of Adam? Every human being is born into a world of sin and death and are themselves guilty of sin and under a death sentence from the time they are born. But why? Because when Adam sinned in the garden, he represented all humanity. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, Romans 5.17, the first part, for if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man. 
Romans 5.18, the first part. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. And there, the second parts of those verses, he brings out how the, the work of Christ leads to righteousness for all who are in Christ. He represents his people. But the point is, Adam in Genesis, when they sin in the garden, Adam stands as a representative. Why is it that when you plant your garden, you have to worry about weeds? Thank you, Adam. It's your fault. You sinned and you were representing us and you were supposed to be ruling over all of creation and and subduing it and bringing it into line with God. And you failed miserably. He stood as our representative. Even more, Jesus Christ stands as our representative so that Adam brought death. The effect of what Adam did is everybody gets death. Um, It's kind of like Oprah when she gives out the presents. You know, you get death, you get death, you all get death. You're represented by Adam. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are represented by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say, by a man focusing on the human nature of Christ that died bodily and rose again bodily. By a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, notice how the man, each man represents those who belong to him. In Adam, all die, meaning all who are in Adam, who belong to his posterity, which is every human being. The language of of in Christ doesn't mean through Christ. It's not language of agency. It's, It's again this language of representation. Paul uses the language of in Christ To speak of your connection to Christ, your union with Christ. So Paul will say in in Romans chapter 16 that that certain people were, quote, in Christ before me. He means they were saved. They they belonged to Christ. They made professions of faith and became a part of Christ's body. And they were in Christ before Paul became a Christian. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's this language of union. It's this language of, of representation, of being part of the body. And so when Paul says, In Christ all are made alive, he is saying, All who are in Christ... All who belong to Christ, all whom Christ represents, who have received the forgiveness of sins, receive because of Him the glorious resurrection body. Now, the non-believer will one day be resurrected. And they will be resurrected unto death. It will be a resurrection to the judgment, and the judgment will lead to condemnation. But the believer has a resurrection like Jesus is, a resurrection unto life where we receive the glory of God, where we are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means later in the chapter when he says a a spiritual body. It is a real body, 
but it is so filled and, and animated with the Spirit that we are now like perfect mirrors to the glory of God. It is going to be wondrous. It is going to be amazing. And it is all because Christ represents me. We also know that Paul is talking about the believer because in verse 23 he says, but each in his own order, speaking of the, the order of the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It, it, it's a fleshing out of what he means by this in Christ language. Belonging to Christ. This is our hope. If you are a believer, you belong to Christ. And your resurrection unto life and glory and the new heavens and the new earth is guaranteed and certain. There must be a future resurrection of the dead. I want you to think about this then. In my life and in my death, Christ represents me if I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He represents me as He bore the penalty for my sins, washing it away completely. He represents me and stands, as we sing in the hymn, stands before the Father's throne and shows His wounded hands and names me as His own. You read through the book of Revelation and, and all the people of God, the children of God, they, they get this name. They belong to Christ. That's us if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is certain and guaranteed because of His resurrection. Are you here today? Do you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand what it means that it is life-changing? Or maybe for some of you, this is, this is something we just rehash every year and you say, I grew up in the church. I get it. Uh, okay, fine, whatever. No, this is watershed. This, this is the central moment of God's plan. The, the death of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. And it, and it guarantees that God is going to wrap up all things and make His glory known in creation. And guess what? If you put your faith and trust in Him, you get to be a part of that. And you never have to worry about being excluded from that. Because Christ is the first fruits. Sometimes we struggle with our salvation. We struggle with assurance. We get in moments in life, trials come, hardships come, and, and we wonder, you know, am I really saved? Maybe a hardship comes and we even start to ask, well, is, is God really there? Does He really care for me? Does He really love me? Or we sin and then we start to say, man, I thought... You know, I was a Christian. I know I should be acting better as a Christian. And we start to get scared. Well, maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe God has, has kicked me out. Your salvation is secure because of the One who secured it. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. And your resurrection is secured because you are in Christ if you are a believer. You are tethered to Him. God looks at you and He sees the work of His Son. And He puts upon you the righteousness of His Son. And you will be crowned and placed upon you royal white robes because of the work of the Son. 
And this is guaranteed to you. When we say Christ is risen, this is guaranteed to you and I if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection is for us and for our salvation. It accomplishes things. It it does something. I always sort of fear that we will think of the resurrection of Jesus as God's afterthought. Sort of a, wow, didn't see that one coming. They killed Him. What am I going to do now? Or maybe we say, well, we knew He was going to the cross, so He just decided to undo the death. He did more than undo the death. Because Jesus got a body that now has indestructible human life. It cannot die. It cannot be set with weakness. Just like in heaven. We'll have no crying. No tears. No frailty. No getting old. Because the resurrection body that we get is of the same type that Jesus already has. Christ has risen. Second, this morning, rejoice because Christ's resurrection guarantees His present reign and His coming triumph over God's enemies. When we preach the Gospel, we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is a King. He rules over all things. And that resurrection guarantees to you and I that He didn't just pay for our sins, but He ushered in a new phase of the reign of God where He sits down at the right hand of the Father in His bodily ascension into heaven and, and the Father gives Him rulership even in His resurrected state now over all of the creation so that every knee and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the resurrection assures us that Christ's reign has begun. He rules over creation. So Paul talks in Ephesians 1 that that God has worked power. And he says He's worked it, quote, in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So, there is then a connection between what God will do in the future and what already has happened in the resurrection. Notice verses 23 and 24. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. God has already, in a sense, begun the end times. How do we know that? Jesus rose from the dead. 
He's, he's begun his plan. And, and we don't know if it will be 2,000 years till Jesus returns or 4,000 years or 10,000 years. But God has connected these events so that the main events are the resurrection of Christ. Then, no matter how much time is in between, the next main event, those who belong to Christ when Christ returns. Then, the next main event, the final event, if you will, comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. It's after the judgment. Now I think Revelation 20 uh, spells out a thousand years between those last two phases of an earthly reign. And I think part of it is because, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, that, that we will reign with Christ. That, that there will be a, a period of time where we exercise some authority over the creation in, in bringing it into line with God and subduing His enemies. But notice that the rule begins with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, speaking of the present reign, that Jesus presently reigns in verse 25, for He must reign until He has put all things under His, enemy, uh, under his feet. Excuse me, all His enemies under His feet. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that Jesus was, quote, declared or, or literally appointed the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of His holiness by His resurrection. So Jesus is King. He's the eternal Son of God. He's always been the, the Son of God. But, but now, in, in His human bodily resurrection and then ascending up into heaven, it, it is like being having a, a crown put on His head that He begins to take upon Himself the fulfillment of all of these Messianic Psalms, like Psalm 2 where it says, I have set My King in Zion. From there He will rule. Jesus goes up into heaven and from there He rules. And He goes there because He rose from the dead. It begins this wonderful, glorious phase of His reign where He is working to conquer all the enemies of God. He has put all things under His feet. This is the kind of imagery that, that when I was a young, rambunctious boy who liked playing army, this is the kind of imagery I loved. I loved the book of Judges where they, the judges go in and they... My favorite one was Ehud because he just stabs the big fat king and they defeat enemies. And Joshua was another wonderful one. There's an, a story in Joshua, events in Joshua, where they capture ten kings. And Joshua says this, When they brought the kings out of Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the kings, uh, said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on their necks of these kings. And then they came near and, and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said uh, to him, uh, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. It, it's this imagery, and it's literal here, that, that you know they, these kings are laying down and and the guy's feet are right up on their neck. They are not only defeated, they are utterly humiliated. And then they are killed. 
the enemies are destroyed. It, you can think back to Genesis, uh, the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent will bite at the heels of the descendants of the woman and, and the, the serpent will be crushed under the foot of the seed. It's promising that Jesus Christ will one day come, the, the seed of the woman, and she, or excuse me, he will defeat Satan. All of God's enemies will either be brought to, to a confession that he is Lord where they submit, or they will be crushed and defeated and vanquished. And why is this? Because Jesus Christ reigns. He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet. This language goes back to Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a reflection on Adam in the Garden of Eve. And it says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have set, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put on uh, all things under his feet. Adam had dominion in the garden. He was to care for it. He was to rule. He was to beat the serpent up and crush it and kick it out of the garden. It would have been the victory of God. And Adam failed. He sinned. And Christ is a better Adam. Paul calls him a second Adam or a last Adam. Just as Adam represented and was to reign but failed, Christ represents us. But He reigns. And He doesn't fail. And He won't fail. Notice verse 26, that Jesus will destroy death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is somewhat personified here. It's, it's given this physicality, if you will, this imagery. It is a, an enemy, a warrior that, that goes out and is trying to, to triumph and destroy. It is the result of the curse. It is not God's original intent for all of creation. And so it needs to be defeated. So you read, if you want to look down into verse 54 and 55, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The book of Revelations chapter 20. Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death the lake of fire. This death that all of us will face unless the Lord returns first, this death of our bodies will be defeated. It will be destroyed. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus reigns over all of creation. And everything that stands against Him, even death, that curse for our sins, will be destroyed, defeated, and undone. Take courage in this. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, quoting Psalm 8. So there's all of these, there's these few Old Testament passages that, that get quoted a lot in the New Testament. There's Psalm 2, verse 6. Uh, today I have, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's, there's Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Father says, come and sit at my right hand. There's also uh, Psalm 8, verse 6. And these three are, are the most quoted Psalms in the, the New Testament. And they are foundational for what Jesus has done in his resurrection and his ascension. And so Hebrews chapter 2, quoting again the Psalm that Paul has also quoted here, says this, that God is, quote, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then Hebrews adds this comment. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So, just pause there for a second. When you look out at the world today, yes, we see sin. Yes, we see things going wrong. Things at times are very horrible. But when you look out, at the end of the day, God is the Jesus Christ specifically is the king who has this all under control and is working out a victory in the end. We don't always see that. Hebrews says, Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing out of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who was for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, what is Hebrews saying? Jesus Christ becomes truly human. And human beings, and in his humanity, Jesus Christ's position is a little lower than the angel's. It ends up with Jesus Christ being humiliated on the cross. And then Jesus Christ rises from the dead. It is this being crowned with glory and honor. And He is invited up into heaven as our representative in a resurrected human body. And He sits down at the right hand of the Father. And everything is under His kingship. And yet, He is still working out the effects of this. Death is still an enemy. It's sort of like in World War II, the biggest, arguably the biggest battle, the most significant battle they fought in World War II was D-Day. That is the day that, that the Allies landed on the beaches in Normandy. It was a horrendous day. And if, you, if you've ever read the history of what led up to that and the anxiety that, that General Eisenhower had and, and almost calling it off and delaying it because of the weather. And, and, and at that point, you know, we, we look back and we say, well, of course the Allies won. But, it, but at that point, they didn't know if they were going to win. Once they landed and, and established a beachhead, the, the, the victory was pretty much secured pretty much guaranteed that it was just a matter of time. But it still needed to be worked out. It still needed to be fleshed out. They still had to go all the way. And if you know your history, there was another major battle, the Battle of the Bulge, where, where the, uh, the Nazis tried to, to fight back. And that was a horrendous, uh, important time as well in the war. But the point is this. Jesus' defeat of death in, in the resurrection is like that D-Day event. 
It guarantees the future victory. And so it is certain, and and in one sense, all things are under the, the authority of Jesus and under His feet, and yet there is still an enemy army running around. Death still has some power, even though its fate is certain and sealed. Sometimes this is how we feel in our lives. A loved one dies and and, and we wonder, what is God doing? God is in control and all things are under the authority of Jesus. I trust that you believe that this morning. And there will come a day where we won't anymore see it with the eyes of faith, where we believe He is in control. We will see it with our real eyes in resurrection bodies. And really the question is for us now, am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust the Word of God and and believe in Jesus and, and entrust myself to Him and confess He is Lord? And He deserves my loyalty and my obedience and my response to Him. That I would bow before Him. Or am I going to test God and say, I'll just wait and see. Because there will come a day where it is too late. And that day will be the judgment. Notice then, the Father, God the Father who has put all things under His feet, but the Father isn't under the Son's authority. So, 1 Corinthians 15.27 For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things uh, in subjection under Him. Now, the language there, even in English, gets just a, a little bit confusing. So what it is saying is this. God raised Jesus from the dead. God put everything under the authority of Jesus in His resurrection state. God, the one who put things under Jesus' authority, all things, all of creation, God is still the Father of Jesus. There's still this relationship. God isn't under the authority of Jesus. What Jesus is doing in His humanity is exercising out the reign and rule of God so that He can establish the peace of God, the glory of God in creation, and hand the kingdom back to the Father. It is, it is like in the ancient world where you would have a, a high king. And that high king would send a, a, a delegate, uh, uh, maybe a governor or another we, uh, minor king, lesser king, if you will. And he would send them into that area and he would say, go out there and, and, and spread my kingdom there. Jesus in His humanity, representing us and and being a better Adam, is representing God's rule. He's saying, I'm accomplishing this for the Father so that God would be glorified. Look at verse uh, 28. When all things are subjected to Him, in other words, when all things are under the authority of Jesus, then... The Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. That God may be all in all. So in Psalm 110, God says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said, Sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So what does God do? 
God puts his son Jesus on the throne in heaven at his right hand. And he says, rule over this creation where there are still enemies. I will extend your reign. I will extend your scepter. And then when Jesus Christ's reign has extended over all of the creation and and the death is defeated and resurrection of believers comes, then Jesus takes this kingdom and says, it's yours, Lord. I have exercised this authority because I'm, I'm representing people, human beings, but I'm also spreading out your reign. This is your rule now. Here, Father, take this. Rule over your creation, which you already rule over, but, but now it's peaceful. Now it's subdued. Now it will enjoy you. Now it will delight in your authority. It is no longer in rebellion. God the Father sends His Son to die for us, to conquer sin and death, to subdue our rebellious hearts and win them over to Him. And then He sets Him at the right hand of the Father in resurrection and says, work this out. Send out this reign. Announce to the world that Jesus is Lord. That is what God is doing. There's this wonderful line in, um, uh, I was going to say it's in Handel's Messiah. It's, it's in Revelation, and it gets sung in, in Handel's Messiah. In, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world has what? Has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. That is the great hope that the world is under the rulership of God and Jesus because Jesus Christ died and rose again. And we get the privilege of knowing that now and saying, Jesus rose and Jesus reigns. The resurrection of Jesus is much connected to the reign of Jesus now, just as it is connected to the future resurrection of the believer. Do you believe that? Jesus is Lord. Do you understand that? Have you thought in your own life uh, about all of the implications of that? The worship that I need to give Him? The obedience that I need to give Him? The loving response that He delights in having from me? In, in Revelation, they fall down before the throne because Jesus is Lord and He is worthy. And His mission is the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. When you share the Gospel with someone, when you tell them that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, you are also announcing the reign of God in Jesus Christ. When a person gets saved, they confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead. Romans 10, 9 and 10. The final hope is this handing over of the kingdom. And in the new heavens and the new earth, God comes down 
and dwells with men. There is no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Just as on Friday night we talked about how, how the veil was opened so we can go before God. In the new heavens and the new earth, we don't need the temple because God's glory can come down and can spread over all of creation. Look at verse 28. This is what it means when it says that God may be all in all. The, the first all there means that God might be supreme. That God might be superior. That God's rule might be manifest in every corner of creation. He's over it all. In all. The second in all means over everything that He's created. He is over all. All in all means He's over all in all. In every square inch of the creation. In the new heavens and the new earth, the glory of God will be manifest like we have never seen. And it's accomplished because Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Let me just leave you with this sort of challenge. We need that sort of God-centered and Jesus-centered vision of God's whole plan. What is God's plan for my life? God has given me the purpose of enjoying Him and delighting in Him. Chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's accomplished. When you say Jesus Christ is risen, you're saying He's Lord. And we will enjoy Him forever. If Christ rose... If He rose from the dead, He is King. And if he is, reign, if he is King, then He is reigning. And if He is reigning as a King, He will complete His reign. Where do I stand right now? Are you rejoicing this morning that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And so we leave where we started. Rejoice that Christ has risen from the dead. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we want to delight in You. We want to come to Your presence. We want to acknowledge that the Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and You have put all things under His authority and yet we don't yet see it. You have guaranteed the defeat of death and yet the last enemy still needs to be defeated. And yet in the interim, you have forgiven our sins. You have washed us and cleansed us and made us whiter than snow. And so even now, your, your scriptures say that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That you have begun this good work in us and you will carry it through to completion. May we, Lord, just marvel in that, just Rejoice in that and proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ in accomplishing our salvation through His death and through His resurrection. Give us the eyes to see that today. Give us a heart of faith that we might believe and trust in You. In Your precious name we pray. Amen.